This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Little Rock, Pastor Mac, Mickey Mantle, Kerouac, Sputnik, Cho and Lai, Bridge on the River Kwai, Lebanon, Charles de Gaulle, California Baseball, Stock Weather Homicide. Ooh, serious. Oh, Very serious. Oh, no. Hello again, and welcome to episode 66 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's hit song as our marching orders to the biggest headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I am Tom Fornice. Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Starkweather Homicide. Big one, Katie. A big, messy, gory episode. We probably should say at this point yeah. that there will be discussions of heinous murders, a series of heinous murders. So if that isn't your thing, perhaps choose a more opportune moment to listen to this episode. Perhaps try something lighter from our back catalogue. Yeah, like the kitten episode. Did Billy do it? <laughs> did we not do a kitten episode? The kitten episode, the episode about Care Bears. And <laughs> no, okay, like okay, Einstein, Einstein. I know there is an Einstein episode, and I also could recommend our recent one, Bridge on the River Kwai. I thought that was quite festive. What have I done? What have I done? Khrushchev, the walking potato, who also was a communist leader, he has it all. So listen to that if you don't want to listen to. I mean, I personally am very interested in psychopaths, so I'm very interested in getting into today and also trying to get to the nitty-gritty of whether Charlie Starkweather, who is the aforementioned homicider, uh, whether he was a psychopath. So this is something that we have to mm. get to the bottom of. So if you haven't heard of Charles Starkweather, he was 19 years old in 1958, and together with his girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate, who was a mere 14, 14, 14 he killed 10 people in eight days. Days, a killing spree, as well as someone before the spree began. That was just a warm up. That was a warm up. This all took place in Nebraska and Wyoming in 1958. I didn't know that much, Katie, but I had, however, seen both Badlands, film early 1970s, and the gory slash fest Natural Born Killers, 1994, yes. starring Harrelson and Lewis as yes. uh, a pair of serial killers. And don't forget that Bruce Springsteen also wrote a song alluding to the murder. Nebraska. Written from the perspective of Charlie Starkweather. Yes. Is it really a good idea to uh, humanize somebody who took the life of so many humans? Well, Katie, it is a grisly topic, but we have the ideal guest to hold our hand as we try to cover our faces. And that is David Wilson, who is one of the UK's leading criminologists. He is a former prison governor, the author of 15 books and the emeritus professor of criminology at Birmingham City University. Welcome, David. Well, thanks so much. And it seems very appropriately American that this is the 66th episode. I feel we're We're, on a route. Yeah, that's right. We are on a route. (laughs) Yeah, Route 66, there you go. David, there's so much we want to talk about, specifically around Charlie Starkweather and Carol. But before we do so, just give us a little flavour of what it is like working on a daily basis with psychopaths and murderers. Well, it's interesting. You've, um, I mean, firstly, thank you so much for... uh, inviting me. I enjoy this podcast immensely. And uh, even just watching you do the introduction has made me realize it was the right decision to agree to speak with you. But even in the introduction, you've used a certain number of terms that are pretty loose and get applied really without the kind of rigor that one would apply them in academic literature. Well, our hallmark is rigor Free. Our hallmark is to be lacking in rigor. So I think you've hit the nail on the head here, David. So the first thing would be to talk about spree and serial. I mean, you've ah. mentioned serial killer and Charles Starkweather is a spree killer. There is a very much a difference between the spree and the serial killer that is worth us considering. Oh, yes. Let's uh, find out about that. Well, a, a serial killer, the original FBI definition of uh, a serial killer way back in the early 1980s, was someone who kills three or more people in a period of 
greater than 30 days. So there's a numeric threshold in terms of the numbers of victims, three or more, but those victims aren't created all at once as they would be with a mass murderer or in a short period of time with a spree killer. A serial killer classically has a cooling off period where he would return, and it usually is a he, although there are female serial killers, he would return to his normal working life or professional life or married life or domestic life and give no cause for concern to those family or friends who surrounded him. So the cooling off period is the classic thing that would differentiate the serial killer from the spree killer. Now, as you say, uh, Tom, in your introduction, most of Starkweather and Carol's victims are created in an eight-day period when they kill 10 people, but there was one victim in the December before the spree in January 1958. There is, as it were, no cooling-off period. And, of course, I hear the label psychopath being used constantly in the media. Uh, socially, people will say, oh, my boyfriend's a psychopath, my girlfriend's a psychopath. I will get emails from parents saying, I'm really worried my child is a psychopath. And so it's just become one of those catch-all terms that really has lost its connection to the clinical definition of being a psychopath. And of course, psychopathy as a phenomenon is actually rather rare, rather than this kind of omnipresent uh, use that one hears about it. And to be labelled clinically as a psychopath, you would have to score about 26 or above out of 40 on Hare's psychopathy checklist revised. And what would be a couple of uh, questions on that checklist? One of the most obvious would be, has had multiple sexual partners. Um, a psychopath... That would... sounds like a party boy or a party girl. Slightly worried. Uh, but uh, you, the psychopath <laughs> would be married uh, in multiple affairs mm. and within multiple affairs also have girlfriends uh, or boyfriends. Yes. He would simply use sex as a way of getting close to you so that by being close to you, he would then be able to use that closeness mm. for his own advantage. So it's not just multiple sexual partners, it's multiple sexual partners within a kind of context in which he's using sex in a way as to create a, a false closeness that he's then able to use. Mm. One of the things I've heard about psychopaths, David, is that they are hugely manipulative Another thing I've heard is that they can sometimes be strangely charismatic. So when we look at Charles Starkweather, there are certain images, Katie, that we've looked at where he has, shall we say, shades of James Dean, who's yes. one of his heroes. He's got the swept back hair. There's a photo that we'll put on our social media where he is looking very Dean-esque, swept back, thick hair, cigarette on his lips. He's got a black leather jacket, a white T-shirt, very Dean-esque. Was he like that, David? Um, you're right to draw attention to his image. I mean, what it was that he was channeling. And of course, a couple of years, I think it was September 1955 when James Dean dies. And of course, Dean becomes this icon of troubled teenagers and it becomes a kind of, you know, a, a way to express oneself at a time when the whole concept of teenager was still you look like a younger version of your father or your mother. So um, to start whether he was the third of seven children. He was short. He was five foot five. He was born uh, with a birth defect, which meant that he had bow legs. He um, had a stammer, a speech impediment. I've I've heard one um, PBS on the 30th anniversary of the, the Starkweather murders did a very good retrospective and I got to see some of the crime scene photographs at that point and also the house where Starkweather was born. But it was quite clear when one heard Starkweather speak, I mean, he had a very high-pitched voice. Yeah. It was quite odd. Now, compare that 
to James Dean and you've got a very different set of cards that you're being asked to play with when you're a child. And the other thing that we know about Starkweather is he had bright red hair and he was picked on at school. He went to the local primary school. Um, His red hair, his bow legs, his speech impediment all meant that other kids focused on him. Um, When he went to Lincoln High School in Nebraska as um, a, a teenager, again, he was being picked on and then excelled in the gym. And so he started to pick on those people who had been picking on him. And so he tried to turn the tables around a little. But one of the things that we've got to guard against, and one of the things I know from talking to um, murderers and other violent men, is that you mustn't allow them to control the narrative. And Starkweather controls the narrative about a lot of the things that have become accepted as part of the story. Carol Ann Fugate will try to retrieve the narrative at various places, yeah. but you hear Starkweather just before he's being executed saying things like, um, Um, dead people are all on the same level. And it's that sense in which he's trying to recreate a connection back to James Dean. And he's very conscious of his image, I think, when he is being photographed by the press. And actually, that is true of most of the murderers that I've worked with. Yeah, it's a, a total narcissistic drive. Charlie Starkweather's high school friend, Bob Von Bush, described him thus. He could be the kindest person you've ever seen. He'd do anything for you if he liked you. He was a hell of a lot of fun to be around, too. Everything was just one big joke to him. But he had this other side. He could be mean as hell, cruel. Now, there's part of the appeal of the psychopath, though. Uh, I mean, it's always very difficult to um, retrospectively apply her psychopathy checklist to historical characters or indeed to President Putin, which, you know, people would love me to do. But the idea of being fun to be around. The thing about the psychopath is initially they're great fun to be around. They do things you would never dream of doing. They say things you would never dream of saying. And you think, my gosh, there's a magnetism. I want to be with that person. But then ever so slowly, you begin to see the wood from the trees and realize that that fun comes at a cost and that cost is often very, very high indeed. How does he get involved with Carol Fugate? Uh, through mutual a mutual friend who was going out with Carol's, uh, a friend of Carol's and Carol was five years his junior, Charles's junior. I think now, she was, what, like 13 when they first got together. And he was 18 and quite clearly of a very different generation. You know, I'm a father of a daughter. And you know, if my daughter at 13 had brought home an 18-year-old uh, man, I would be like, no, 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 I'm really sorry. This is not going to go anywhere and leave the house now. Um, so I would be incredibly protective. And even thinking about different standards, different cultures, different times. I still think that age difference between the 18-year-old Charlie Starkweather and the 13-year-old Caroline Fugate is something that I would be drawing attention to. But it becomes a feature, I think, as a folie à deux. Do you know that phrase? Why don't you tell us about it? A folie à deux is literally French for a madness shared by two. And uh, of course, it sometimes is popularly known as there being a killer couple. Well, like Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. Indeed, or Fred and Rose West. And within the folie à deux, there's always a dominant and a subservient. And the subservient begins to adopt entirely the worldview of the dominant and does the dominant's bidding, even though they are subordinate to the dominant within the folie à deux. Is there any clue whatsoever of what will come to pass in the earlier life of Charles Starkweather? Do you know that? So this is the basic question of forensic psychology or criminology. Are we born or are we made? Is it nature or nurture? Um, I've always taken the view that it is neither one nor the other, but it's a messy combination of the two. However, I do believe we are biological beings. I believe that we have brains, we have hearts, uh, we are genes, we are neurons. And therefore, I, I believe we're born the way that we are. 
but how we are nurtured after we are born can shape that kind of biological being for good or for ill. So nurturing is important, how we're brought up is important, but there is nothing particularly in Charles Starkweather's background that would indicate that he had to become uh, a spree killer. Although I would say this, um, in doing the research for today, I was shocked myself because, you know, it's always described, you know, he's the third of seven children and they come from a poor working class white background and so forth. When I saw the PBS 30 anniversary uh, documentary, it looked like pictures from a Walker Evans photograph. We are talking about real poverty, abject poverty. And I hadn't quite grasped just how appalling the family circumstances of Starkweather were. Now, everybody listening to this will immediately be shouting at the radio saying, well, I was brought up in poor circumstances and I didn't go on to become a serial or a spree killer. And that's absolutely true. You know, it doesn't imply that that background will necessarily lead in that direction. But when you looked inside their home, as the cameras had been able to do at the time of Starkweather's arrest, one really did get a picture of abject, real, utter poverty. And did you get a sense that Carol Fugate also came from poverty or was she a little bit more bougie in her background? I love that phrase, bougie. Uh, yeah, she was a little more bougie. But the interesting thing for me was Carol was living with a stepfather and her natural mother. And I get the impression that her stepfather was called Marion. And I get the impression that that relationship wasn't particularly a happy one. Right. And um, again, it would be quite interesting because the first of the spree, this is where we do need to do the listener warning, the, the first of the spree killings was actually a family annihilation because it was Carol Ann's mother, her stepfather, and the two year old child. Yeah, her half-sister. Her half-sister. And so what ha what kicked that off? What happened? Yeah, I know that's always been explained that there's two different narratives here, that Carol wasn't present when the three members of her family are murdered. By Charlie. By Charlie. Charlie always says that she was present. Carol will say, oh no, he told me that my family had been taken hostage and I had to do everything so as to get my family released. Yeah, she says she was at school and then she came home from school and that his, and he tied up the family. And she didn't know they were dead. Uh, they lived in that house after the mother, the stepfather and the half-sister are murdered. They lived in that house. Charlie Starkweather and Carol Fugate. For how many days? Seven. Do you really believe that she still thought that okay. her family weren't there? When you put it like that, David. Yeah. Although she was a teenager. She was a little girl. She was about 14 by this stage. So he had a big song and dance once he was captured that, well... The, the dad accused me of getting his daughter pregnant, so you know I had to kill him, self-defense. He was claiming everything was self-defense. I don't know. Uh, he said the mother came after him with a knife. I don't know what his story is about the, the two-year-old uh, half-sister of Carol, like why that was self-defense. But um, there's an interesting scenario. Once the family's annihilated and then family members are wondering, hey, whatever happened to our sister, our brother, our, our dad? People are coming by to knock on the door and... Carol keeps sending them away. And puts a notice on the door saying that everybody's got uh, the flu or something <laughs> yeah. and, until her grandmother, I think it is, says, I'm going to go to the police. Isn't it interesting, though? So two things from that. It's interesting, isn't it? The, there's that sense of how she is uh, hiding what, is, what has actually happened within the house. And secondly, though, I was intrigued, and you used that great word, bougie. I was intrigued that they wanted to stay in the house. Yes. It was almost like they were recreating an idealized version of husband and wife together and what life would be like as husband and wife together f for themselves. It was by eradicating her real family that she could set up, as it were, in a family situation with the man 
man that she wanted to be with, which was this five-year-old older man called Charlie Starkweather. I mean, I've no evidence for that. And one of the things I've been very clear about is that the control of the narratives here are either Charles Starkweather's or Caroline Fugate's. Mm. And you've got to be skeptical about both narratives, I think. Well, yeah. And especially the, the bottom line is they don't leave the scene of the crime. And that seems like pretty freaky. It does, Katie. And I also find myself wondering, David, whether this series of grisly murders that happens in Fulgate's home, would this have happened without the first murder, which takes place pretty much seven weeks before, in the end of November 1957, when Starkweather kills Robert Culver, who it seems is an innocent gas station attendant. Is there something in Psychopaths which means you need a trigger murder or... It's a horrible way of looking at it, but you need first blood to then set you off on the subsequent murders that you'll commit. Okay, let's just be careful about the terms. I've not done a hair psychopathy checklist on Charles Starkweather because I think um, it would... Uh, there are just difficulties about being able to do so. However, I think he would score. I think he would score relatively highly, but I haven't done that. Now... What's interesting about the first murder, though, uh, there are elements to that first murder which are very different to the spree murders. Starkweather goes back to Robert Colvert's garage. Uh, He's a petrol station attendant. And effectively, Starkweather wants some kind of toy from... It's coming up to Christmas. He wants the toy for Carol Ann. And then he wants money out of the till and so forth and so forth and so forth. And effectively, Colvert tells him to get lost. Now, what I found really striking about that is that he then forces, because obviously Starkweather has a gun, um, he forces Culver into a car, and then he's going to shoot and kill Culver. He shoots him multiple times. There's a lot of overkill. So in other words, he's using violence far in excess of the amount of violence that he needs to use to affect what it is he's trying to achieve. But the big thing that I got from that first murder, which I would say is very common with a great many of the violent men that I've worked with is a loss of face. Um, Some men feel that if they are not given respect, if they don't get that sense of you have to be respectful to me or I will take revenge, they lose face. And that's driving, I think, that first murder as much as anything else. By this stage, of course, Starkweather has left high school pretty unsuccessfully. Um, He's been working in a warehouse. He then becomes a garbage collector, which uh, I would say a bin man in this country. He's desperate for status. He's not getting that status. He's not getting the respect that he feels he deserves from Colvert. And that, to me, characterizes that first murder. And it seems to be of a different kind from the spree murders that then will take place, what, um, 30 days later. Well, that is a lot. And I think I need a moment. And I'm going to give you all the benefit of my moment. So meet you back here in a moment. Hello, I'm Sam Walker. I've spent the last few months talking to this guy. If we have to pull a trigger on one person, they're all going to go. It's that simple. He's called KC. He's an American vigilante. And he kind of looked at me and I said, I swear to God, I said, if you do anything other than what I told you to do, I said, I'm going to kill you right here. Download the podcast, American Vigilante. Download American Vigilante. Out now. Now. Do you want more crowd podcasts? Let me tell you about the Crowd Stories channel. It's where you can find all of Crowd's documentaries. In one place. And for just £1 a week, they're ad-free. Addictive documentaries like American Vigilante. I'm a monster hunter. It's what I do. And Murder in House 2. I know you know what happened. You want to keep it to yourself, you suit yourself. You're going down. Unbelievable investigations into government cover-ups. Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. And immerse yourself in the stories of death of a rock star. Just search for Crowd Stories on Apple Podcasts. And hit the subscribe button. 
See you there. Katie, I'm listening to this, and the word that keeps appearing in my mind is why. Why does he choose the victims that he does? Because the victim he then chooses next is a 72-year-old woman. She's a family friend. He goes to a house, he shoots her, he kills her dog. I mean, these are crimes that most of us can't understand at all. So here's my favourite question that I normally... And I'm going to genuinely ask you this question, and I want you to be... Both of you come across as very honest, so I know you'll be honest with me. Of all the murders that take place in England and Wales, separate criminal justice systems in Scotland and Northern Ireland, so of all the murders that take place in England and Wales on any given year, what percentage of that number get cleared up by the police? By cleared up, I just simply mean that the police get the person what done it. So all I'm looking for is a percentage. What figure do you think, Katie? Oh, 50%. 50, you're sitting on the fence, Katie. I know. <laughs> it's very comfortable here. Uh, 50%. <laughs> yes. Tom? Yeah, uh, it can't be that comfortable, Katie, because I'm also sitting on 50%. But for the interest of this discussion, do I go higher or do I go lower? So higher or lower? I That's a game show that does this, I'm good sure. Game show. I'm going to say lower. So what are you going to say? 34%. Could you be more specific? No, I uh, the answer is 90%. Nine out of 10 murders get oh. solved. And here's your first criminological question. Whoa. Why? Why are the police so good at solving the crime of murder? What do you think? Because it's obvious. Sorry, policeman. Um, is it often obvious from the evidence and from the, the fact they're maybe related? Yeah, related. I think like it's people they know. It's Start people in their own family. It isn't forensic science. It isn't offender profilers. It's not... The Police have greater powers. It's the simple reality that husbands kill wives, yeah. um, boyfriends kill their girlfriends, mm. parents kill their children, young men who know each other fall out with each other after they've been drinking too much and they kill one another. Most murders are self-solvers. Mm. Two women a week are murdered by their partners or ex-partners in this country. It's a shameful statistic. So when you say, Tom, you know, he knows this woman, he knows these people, that that's the phenomenon of murder. It's mm. only on the telly that you have super intelligent serial killers that outwit the police after episode after episode after episode. The reality of murder is sadly so much more awfully banal and evil. And so what is it that gets Charlie and Carol out of their cozy little domestic situation after they annihilate her family and move on to the next murders. What Do they have some kind of strategy? I, I don't think they would have a strategy and we're back into the folia duh. We're back into this sense, let's just steal the car, let's just hit the road, let's just keep going and we'll live this happy existence somewhere else in Wyoming or Washington State or wherever it was that they wanted to get to. And whilst they were on the, the their road trip, they would encounter people that they would kill because they need to take something from them. I don't think there's anything deeper than that kind of idealized notion that they were a couple and they were hitting the road and they were seeking their fortune somewhere else. And they were going to go out in a blaze of glory because that blaze of glory gave them the status which Charles Starkweather absolutely demanded, wanted, felt was rightly his, even though he'd never got it at school or within his family. And later in his uh, very short life, he wrote in a letter to his father, but dad, I'm not real sorry for what I did because for the first time, me and Carol have more fun. There you go. So I'm interested in the fact that nowadays we have so much awareness about the phenomenon around killers and the way that society enables them to do their work. And of course, at the time that Charlie and Carol were joyriding around the county, there was not this awareness. And I think the impact on the local community must have been enormous, like they must have been aghast, astonished, perhaps titillated, obviously terrified. I mean, there wasn't a big context for this the way there is now. There wasn't a way to have an understanding. What was the impact on the community? Well, it was huge. And of course, there were a number of stages of that impact. The first was, we just need to catch them, because it was a 
debris. You know, they were still out there and they were still killing. And of course, the policing of the spree ratchets up once the ward's house is attacked. The wards were a particularly used bougie as a term. The wards were very upper middle class. Nice uh, house, a nice neighborhood. With maid. a maid. Yeah. So who always gets for- forgotten, it seems to me, within the story of the wards. But once the wards were attacked, um, Ward was a personal friend of the governor of Nebraska. The policing of that takes on a completely different level. Oh, there's a new a new urgency because it's more important and impactful members of the community. And so the community is really frightened, and there and seemingly in the city of uh, of Lincoln in Nebraska, there were no more guns to be bought. Firearms sold out, so people were really frightened, and they were arming themselves once. The spree is over and Fugate and Starkweather have been arrested. Quite clearly, there's a second phase, which is all about how the community tries to make sense of what they did. Uh And by personalizing it either onto Starkweather or to Fugate or to them both, that takes the responsibility away from having to look at bigger, structural, deeper, more profound issues, which might also have driven the the crimes themselves. And then, of course, there's the thereafter phase. The thereafter phase is the kind of media that we've been talking about. Yeah, the media went crazy. I mean, this was total catnip, wasn't it, for the local newspapers and probably worldwide newspapers? Yeah, and you then get the the media attention on it. And then, Mm. of course, that media attention has a particular way of framing the narratives of these stories. And of course, you even you mentioned, Tom, the Bruce Springsteen song, which, of course, was a Bruce Springsteen song, not about Charles Starkweather, but really a Bruce Springsteen song about Terence Malick's Badlands, because the opening lyrics of uh, Springsteen's song come direct from Badlands rather than what we know happened between Starkweather and Carol Fugate. There's something that I've wondered here, David, in the killings of the industrialist and his wife and the maid, they're stabbed rather than shot like the previous victims. Oh, yeah, good point. Why is that? Uh, the Running out of bullets. N- no, I don't think it was that. There's a, If you're shooting someone, it's slightly more impersonal because there's a physical distance between you and the person that you're going to kill. If you're stabbing someone, you are literally um, looking in their faces as they are dying. It's a much more personal, intimate way of murdering someone. Although, of course, the most would be to strangle someone when you are literally squeezing the life out of. And I've certainly worked with a few murderers who did that. But here's the thing, though, Tom. Often when you are in a situation where you're interviewing somebody who's murdered uh, about why they did X as opposed to Y, they look at you as if you're a complete idiot because they're not thinking rationally in the moment at all. They're reacting emotionally. Often there's no reason at all. And it's only me thinking that, you know, the wards are quite clearly an upper middle class um, family in a very ritzy neighborhood of Lincoln, Nebraska, that the knives were used as opposed to guns. Let's talk about the capture. Mm. So can you talk us through what happens? Because as soon as a cop pulls up to Charlie Starkweather's car, doesn't Carol just kind of jump out the passenger seat and rush towards the policeman? She absolutely does. And she shouts, it's stark weather. It's stark weather, and more or less falls into the police officer's arms as if to say, "I've been taken hostage for this past few weeks when all these murders took place." Now, by that stage, also they had crossed state boundaries. They had moved from Nebraska to Wyoming. Their final victim was a man called Merle Collison, who was a, a shoe salesman who had been sleeping in his car. They tried to steal the car, uh, but of course there was a, after shooting. Uh, poor Mr. Collison. There was some kind of parking uh, brake arrangement that Starkweather didn't know how to manage. But somebody called Joe Sprinkle comes along and 
was going to offer help so that they could get the car going. But of course, uh, Starkweather tried to shoot him and there was a, a fight for the gun. And then it just so happened that a law enforcement agent came past and encounters this melee. And at that point, Carol Fugate, recognizing, I think, that the game is up, runs towards the police officer and hence ends the killing spree. So they get him alive, which must be very satisfying for the locals, because you kind of expected that he was going to go down in a Bonnie and Clyde hail of gunfire. Mm -hmm. But no, he gets hauled in. And then, Tom, I want to show you this photograph of little Carol Ann Fugate. Now, she looks tiny there. Tiny. She's next to a sheriff who is in a five-gallon hat, we call him that, or a ten-gallon hat. Yes. But a big butch sheriff with a fur-lined collar that you'd expect in those sometimes freezing parts of the world. And now she truly does look like a little girl. She's wearing a scarf. She's got a ponytail. Her eyes are downcast. And uh, she looks very, very vulnerable. So the sympathies must have been all over the place. People making all sorts of assessments um, about, well, if she should sit on Charlie's lap on the electric chair, two for the price of one. Other people, no, no, no. She definitely was one of his victims and she's just a little girl. I mean, it, it must have been a very confusing time. Well, it, it remains confusing, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, we know in this country that um, women who commit murder are seen as being doubly deviant. They break a gender stereotype about what supposedly women do, and they also break the law by taking another person's life. We know that children are either seen as irredeemably good, but then we also have to acknowledge that there are also children who do kill other children. And so we still have the same issues, I think, Mm. in our culture in this country today as clearly what was happening in Nebraska and what people in Nebraska were having to deal with after Fugate and Starkweather are captured. I'm interested in the fascination and some adulation directed at Charlie Starkweather because he began to capture the imagination of other young people. Was this a phenomenon that people expected or even understood back in the 50s? Because nowadays we have this whole idea of like women who write to killers in prison and offer to be their girlfriends and uh, people who are big fans of mass murderers. But what about this and Charlie Starkweather? Yeah. Uh, Starkweather very consciously captured an image, an iconography related to James Dean, who dies in dreadful circumstances in his sports car, his uh, spider, his Porsche spider, I think it was. And so Starkweather's channeling all that and the images of him. I mean, you described him, I I thought, rather beautifully in that picture where he was sitting on the sofa with Carol Ann. She looked like a pixie. He looked like, you know, he had something about him that was, Um, attractive, magical, alluring. And of course, that's going to be magnified by what then has to happen to him through the court process. And that becomes confused because already the defense for Caroline Fugate has been effectively it's what we would now call Stockholm syndrome that you know she's been taken hostage by this man the way that she's had to survive is to go along with his game and gradually over time really just simply accepts the worldview that he tells her to adopt and those issues it seems to me have never really been resolved even if they've been resolved because of course Caroline Fugate doesn't get executed serves a prison sentence and then eventually is given parole and has made a number of statements since uh, being released from prison in which she absolutely denies any involvement at all in what Starkweather did. I want to talk more about Carol in a moment because how you live your life after a series of seismic events like that sort of fascinates and baffles me. But before we leave Charles behind, he is executed in the electric chair He's only ever tried for one murder, David, which is Robert Jensen, who was one of two local teenagers who he killed. I'm guessing that's a procedural thing. They only need to convict him of one murder. Was there ever any chance of his death sentence being commuted to a life sentence or was he always going to go to the chair? Interesting. Um, The interesting thing was that he was captured 
in Wyoming, but he chose, Starkweather chose to come back to Nebraska. The governor of Wyoming was against capital punishment, and even if he had been found guilty, the chances of him being executed in Wyoming were negligible. Do you think he knew that? Was that part of his calculus, or he just goofed up? I think he just goofed up, and I think he came back to Nebraska because in Nebraska, he he got the biggest bang for his buck. Nebraska was who he was angry at. Mm. You know, it was Lincoln High in Nebraska. He attacked people in Nebraska. It was on his spree that he was in other states. And I think that he only got charged with one murder because it was a capital offence. If he got found not guilty by some chance for that murder, Robert Jensen, there would have been other charges brought against him. But it's a capital offence, so you only need to prove him guilty once. And I think that's what happened there. How does America reconcile itself to these crimes? Because at this point in the century, America is still a deeply religious country, has a national moral code that most of its citizens would consider themselves signed up to. How does America try to understand these killings at the time? Well, they personalise them. They understand those killings by giving all the responsibility to Starkweather and then the sub-debate, how much responsibility does Carol Ann play in what happened? But they personalise it. They don't look at what maybe Slavov Zizek might say, which is the, the violence of the underlying capitalist culture and how there will be very few winners and a great many losers within that particular kind of economic system. They don't look fundamentally at societal change. They don't look fundamentally at how to include young people, to think about bullying, to think about masculinity. You know, uh, at the end of the day, often what we're dealing with is our gender, Tom. This is about us and needing to have a discussion about how to perform our gender. America doesn't look at those things in the 1950s at all. America looks at simply putting all the responsibility on Starkweather and slightly less responsibility on Carol Ann. It is June 1959 when Starkweather is executed. Extraordinarily, because this feels like several lifetimes ago, Carol Ann Fugate is still alive. Yeah. Yeah. Carol Ann Fugate remarried. She went to live in Michigan. She was a janitorial assistant. Her husband died in a car accident nine years ago. I just find myself wondering, Katie, how this girl who was 14 at the time of the murders has lived the rest of her life. It's incredible. I mean, anyone can look online and see clips on YouTube of her being interviewed, like her growing up before her eyes, incarcerated, um, looking quite demure, fashionable, cat eye glasses, plucked eyebrows, softly spoken. At one stage, she gets a job while still in prison taking care of babies uh, when she's implicated in the violent death of her two-year-old half-sister. So that seems like a leap of faith for the mother of the the child in that crush. Um, (laughs) So your point of of how does she live with herself? How does that feel? The fact, David, that you said that she's made statements absolutely abdicating any responsibility for these deaths. Well, I'm so elderly now that I've got my last two PhD students and the very last PhD student, his thesis is about life after life. How does somebody who's taken the life of another person begin to rebuild and relive their lives after they have been released from jail? And there are a number of strategies that are adopted. One of the most common is simply to be silent is simply not to engage, melt into the community and be judged by um, how you then are as opposed to who you might previously have been. And Fugate is very much somebody uh, like that. We never see any remorse from Charles Starkweather Mm. about what he did, whereas Caroline Fugate has been very clear that she had nothing to do with it and she regrets what happened to the victims. And that definitely is a difference between her and what Charlie Starkweather says. This is a sort of a thought along the same sort of lines, Katie, but I also find myself wondering how the rest of the Starkweathers carry on with their lives with his father, Guy, his mother, Helen, 
and the other six of those seven children. And isn't it interesting that the family didn't want him to plead insanity? Oh, that's a good point. And he didn't want to plead insanity. Like, oh, no, this I have all my marbles. Don't cast aspersions on that. And so, of course, by pleading insanity, they would be acknowledging that there was something wrong yeah. with the family. There was something, there was mental illness in the family genes. And they didn't want that at all. Yeah. They wanted Charles Starkweather to be seen as rational and sane, which of course he was, which is why the lyric in We Didn't Start the Fire is always a bit sad, isn't it? Because it says Starkweather homicide and homicide implies that uh, there was not mens rea whereas in fact he did have a guilty mind. He did commit murder not manslaughter. He was sane. He was fit to plead. So you're saying that if you were in a room with Billy Joel you'd be setting him straight on this. You'd, <laughs> you'd be sending him back to uh, the... We've got his email case so we can always pass it on to David and he can... Um... Yeah, Ask for a reversion of the song. Yeah, I think we need a little revision. Well, um, I'm sure there have been other lyrics in that song, <laughs> which are obviously set up. Uh, Start where the homicide is set up for children of thalidomide. Yes. And I'm sure there are other lyrics in the song that were chosen by Billy Joel as a way of... It's a song, for heaven's sake, yes. not, a, not a, a book about British history or American history. I'm wondering, David, as a criminologist... What did the Starkweather killings teach you and those in your field? Do you, do you glean more information about how the human mind works or how these sort of crimes might be stopped? I characterize, and this isn't meant to be glib, I've characterized most of the serial killers or spree murderers that I've met or worked with or studied as beta males that are just trying to be alphas. And what I take away from that is the need for my gender to have a long conversation with ourselves and with women about how to perform masculinity. Masculinity isn't singular. There are multiple masculinities, and it's how we perform a form of masculinity that seems to me that I take away from this because so often the stark weathers of this world, they're just trying to be men and they don't have the psychological infrastructure to be able to perform being a man, a good man in our society. Katie, this has been a dark but darkly fascinating episode of We Didn't Start the Fire. Professor David Wilson, thank you so much for illuminating us. Thank you. My goodness, David Wilson, he is such an interesting person. I love how he brought humanity to these inhumane topics. And also this idea that what we're seeing in the history of male killers in particular is a crisis of masculinity. It's really... I mean, I'm not trying to be overly sympathetic or explain away the crimes, but this is um, kind of a, a cry for help. You have young men who are feeling inadequate and don't have the permission to be fragile, and uh, they act out in these extremely violent and tragic and annihilating ways. Yeah, I was slightly worried before we sat down today, Katie, that this might be something of a rubbernecking yeah. episode. Yeah, yeah. We ended up going in quite a different direction. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I mean, people are always so fascinated. I know I am by these terrible acts, violent killers, mass killers, because I don't know, there's sort of almost a dark glamour to it because mistakenly, I think people think, uh, oh, these are people with like a big idea and they're like, they're go-getters and they're following through. But it's sort of the opposite, isn't it? They're tragic victims of their own obsessions and inadequacies. If people are interested in hearing more about Death Row, the way to find it is search for the episode of The Joe Marler Show, uh, which features Michelle Lyons, who was the official recorder of Death on Death Row in Texas. If people are interested in that one, they need to search for The Joe Marler Show in your podcast app. The episode in particular you're looking for is called About 
Death Row. There is also one other episode of the Joe Marler Show which may interest people. It is called About Psychopaths. And Joe and I met Dr. Mark Freestone, who is an expert in psychopaths. Similarly dark but illuminating, Katie. Well, dark but illuminating. That's Billy Joel all under. Uh, He certainly led us down a very sinister path today with the Starkweather homicide. But uh, next week, I'm afraid there's going to be no light in this shade because it's children of thalidomide. Yeah, and I think when we began this podcast, Katie, we knew there'd be some japes, we knew there'd be some high scenes, but we also knew that we would be taking a turn into much darker stories. This is certainly one of those. The -the over-the-counter drug developed to manage the symptoms of morning sickness that saw 5,000 to 7,000 babies born with life-changing deformities. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.